I know a number of you are just joining us, but we are this sermon and one away from finishing the book of Daniel, and then we will take a brief break between Daniel and the next book, which will be the Paul's letter to the Romans uh, in the fall. So we have two left. And so in one sense, you are parachuting in the middle of a, of a long exposition here. But one of the things that I could tell you, if you're just picking up uh, the book of Daniel at the end of the 11th chapter, what we've heard over and over is the God of the Bible declares that he knows the future. Some individuals and false religions claim to know it, but they've never delivered on, the, on their boast. So the, any book that you read or prediction that they provide will be, will be short on specifics, vague in its outcomes. Like we mentioned last week, the fortune cookie, you will meet a, a tall, dark stranger today, and you'll find that person if you look for them. Vague, short on specifics. But God, on the other hand, in the Bible, puts himself on the line. He makes declarations long before these, these things can ever be possible for, for their fulfillment so that you can see that he actually knows. He provides exquisite and testable detail about the future and beyond claiming that he knows it and proclaiming it beforehand, he declares that he also controls it. The God of Scripture knows the future Daniel says he sovereignly controls kings and kingdoms, past, present, and future, and that he rescues his faithful people by divine power. And the book of Daniel is one of those places where you see all of those claims coming together in, in 12 chapters. Uh, in the book of Daniel, God unveils the future of the, uh, of the world, the rescue of his people, the return of Christ, the setting up of his earthly and eternal kingdom. And often these events are called the apocalypse or end times and people get really excited and do charts and little men and those type of things. But, but for a believer, they're, they're written for, for our eternal hope. The resurrection of the dead and the presence, the real presence of the Lord Jesus Christ is what we all long for. And so the book of Daniel is one of those, those places where God pulls back the curtain and gives us the, the, the insight. Because if He can show you that He knows the future here, then you'll trust Him for, for even your unknown future. And we're working through the final vision of the book. And today we'll finish the prophecy itself and see one of the greatest promises in, in the Bible. The entire scene is recorded over three chapters. This is the largest vision in, in Daniel. So chapter 10 is Daniel's preparation for that vision. We've already seen that. Chapter 11 is the actual prophecy. We broke that in two. First half last week, second half this week. And then chapter 12 is, is the final encouragement that God gives Daniel, and we'll see that next week. We, we showed you that the vision actually has three scenes. Daniel's preparation, that's chapter 10, the the two sections of this vision, the immediate future, which goes from King Darius, which you've probably heard from Bible stories, all the way up to Antiochus, which you have heard from history, uh, about 164 B.C., the time of the Maccabees, or Hanukkah, if you're familiar with that, celebrates something that took place then. 
Then the far future that we'll see today, that's verse 36 through chapter 12, verse 4, the beginning of the end and the coming of Christ. And then the third scene is God's final uh, revelation. Last week we looked at the first part of the vision, and today we'll see this very end of time. Chapter 11, the Lord gives Daniel uh, more details about what awaits Israel, and it's very troubling. He tells how it's going to go in the Persian and Greek empires, and then he ends with this more information about the little horn of chapter, of chapter 7. And so we saw last week that chapter 11 starts with this parallel of two terrifying beasts from, from, from chapter 8, but then goes in a lot of detail beyond that. Uh, I think what's important to remember is it's historically accurate. Um, even secular unbelievers go to the book of Daniel, in particular chapter 11, in order to get details about history. It's that detailed and that accurate. So it's historically accurate. It's also uh, divinely particular. It doesn't cover everything in in history, but the history that God wants us to to know, what's necessary for the the children of Israel and also for us as believers to see how He's going to wrap this whole thing up. And, And so it leaves a purposeful gap from right before the coming of Christ and it picks back up in the tribulation period. This period between The coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ is called the latter days in in between. So when you hear the term last days, a lot of times you think, you know, like the fury that's going to take place in the end. And there will be a fury that will take place in the end. But, But the Bible says from the ascension of Christ, when he comes, dies, raises from the dead, ascends back into heaven from then until he returns with his promise to to come for his for his people that period of time is the latter days which is why the bible says today is the day of salvation meaning everything that has has already been done everything's been accomplished by christ for you to believe so you should do that so there's a purposeful gap here in daniel takes us all the way up almost to christ and then picks back up right before his his second uh, coming so verse 35, where we left off, leaps over history to what the verse 36 calls the, the, the latter days. That's what we're going to look at this morning. There's coming a kingdom with one wicked ruler who after consolidating his power will pour out his wrath on God's people and God's city and all of the earth. This ruler, the Bible says, will make Hitler and Stalin... And every other king in history looked like a benevolent pacifist. You, you have never seen anyone like it. He, he'll be the most loved ruler in the world and the most self-absorbed leader that the planet has ever known. And that is until God brings him to an end at the second coming of, of Christ. This whole vision is wrapped up in the first four verses of chapter 12 with the promise of the resurrection related to all believers in, in you today. This entire thing is called God's prophecy of troubling times to come. The prophecy of the near future, a prophecy about the far future, and then a prophecy about the end. So after Daniel receives this prophecy about Persia and Greece and Egypt and Syria and Antiochus Epiphanes that we covered last week, we said it felt like we were preaching through a genealogy because they're just kings coming and going, God placing that there for a purpose. All of that is history to us, future to Daniel, All of that lays the foundation for this far future beginning in verse 36, the prophecy about the far future. 
where the Antichrist is introduced, in verse 36, his exaltation is given to us, verse 39, his domination, and then his end. Look, if you would, at verse 36 of Daniel 11. It says, Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. So the angel now introduces a new individual. And it's a little bit hard to see that, uh, or a little bit hard to detect that in, in the English if you're, you've not been paying attention. If you haven't been looking for this final ruler, you may miss him. The, the angel mentions in verse 35, look at verse 35, he mentions the end times and he talks about an appointed time. He says, some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine and purge and make them pure until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. There's still an end time that is appointed to come. And that's coming after verse 35. And then in verse 36 says, then the king will do as he pleases. So the first question you have to answer is, who is this angel talking about? Who is this king? Is this, uh, is this a king that he's spoken of before? Is this one of the kings of the north or the south? And there was a bunch of them. Uh, is this ruler uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, which he just got done talking about? And then the answer is, I think the answer is very plain whenever you look at the details. Turn back to chapter 10, verse 14. This be the only time I'll ask you to turn. But this sets the, the timeline for this entire vision. It's vital that you see this. Chapter 10, verse 14. This is the first place. Remember, this is where Daniel is prepared for the vision. This is the first place that the angel reveals to Daniel what this entire vision is all about. It, it sets the context for what is, is coming. Verse 14 of Daniel chapter 10. It says, now I have come, the angel says, now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision pertains to the days yet future. And so Daniel is told that God's message that he's about to receive that's coming from the angel is extremely important. It is to help you understand what is to happen to your people at, at the end of days. And so when the angel first appears to Daniel, this is after his three-week prayer and fasting, he tells him, I'm going to give you a prophecy, give you information. It's from the Lord, and it has a twofold purpose. It's to give you an understanding. You remember Daniel's praying and fasting because there were, were details he didn't understand. So there were some details that he needed from chapters 8 and 9, and therefore he's struggling. So the angel is going to reveal to Daniel more information than he's gotten before from the three earlier visions. And that's some pretty deep stuff. And Daniel's 70 weeks, the, 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 the little horn. I mean, Daniel's already received a lot, but more's coming. So that should pique your interest. What's coming is even more than Daniel's 70 weeks. But secondly... The angel says, the details that I'm going to give you involve the latter days or end of times. Uh, so that's the time frame that this vision will eventually get to. Sidney Gradena says the phrase at the end of days is literally in the latter part of days. And whenever the Old Testament uses that phrase, it refers to the future right before the coming 
of the Messiah and the second coming and his kingdom. And no wonder Daniel needs strength. I mean, think of the one-two punch that he gets in chapter 10 in this vision. He's, he's, he's told that there's a, he's revealed a spiritual realm that he doesn't even know is happening. That there are angels and demons and there's, there's a spiritual warfare that's, that's taking place. And he's also told about the Antichrist, according to chapter 10, verse 14. And so from verse 14 here, we should be looking for details about what's going to happen in the final days of the earth. And so as we've been tracking through chapter 11, your question should be, oh, is this about the final days? No, that's about Persia. Okay, is this about the finals? No, that's about Greece. Is this about the final? No, that's about Antiochus Epiphanes. And in particular, information about Israel. Notice one more thing about verse 14. Notice it says he's come to reveal details about the end of what's going to happen to your people. So this is about the future of Israel. God still has a plan for Israel. And so that's the key to understand how chapter 11 ends. And up to this point, we've heard everything that's historical. We know these actual events. These are actual events that, that have taken place in historical kings that, that have lived. We've tracked through the history of of Persia and Greece and Egypt and Syria and, and Antiochus. But then in verse 36, everything shifts. Verse 36 on, from that point on, everything is different. It moves to the latter days. And both secular and believing scholars agree that you can find the men that the angel describes up through verse 35 in world history. Everybody agrees on that. E even the scoffers who think that Daniel was written by somebody after Daniel lived. They, as I said, they use this book as a historical reference to trace what happened in the Near East because it's so accurate. They just deny anything supernatural about it. But once you get to verse 36, there is no historical parallel for what's going to happen. There is no king in Israel's history or in history period that does the things described from verse 36 to the end of the chapter. And more importantly, for us who believe the Bible, the details that are in verse 36 and on don't match the details that the Bible gives about Antiochus, who's the only natural antecedent here. I mean, the only king that this could be would be Antiochus. So if the king of verse 36 is the same as the despicable one of verse 21, there's a big problem here. Because what follows contradicts earlier passages, and meaning that they can't be the same person or you have an error in this prophecy. Antiochus never did as he pleased or had full reign, as verse 36 says, because Rome restricted him. Antiochus never forsook the gods of his fathers. Uh, in, in fact, he, he, he considered himself a god, but he didn't reject others. Remember, he set up a, an altar to Zeus in the in the temple. So he didn't reject the Greek pantheon. He never conquered Egypt, as verse 43 says. He, and this king doesn't, this king does the opposite. Not only he conquers Egypt, but everywhere else. Egypt will fall to him according to verse 43, and so will the Libyans and the, the Cushites, which is everything south of Egypt in, in Africa. He'll become their ruler. Antiochus never did that. In fact, it was his frustration that he couldn't do all of those things that led him to pour out his wrath on the people of Israel. Whoever this king is, is going to reign in the last period. Look, if you would, at verse 40 of chapter 11. Just jump a few verses ahead there. 
tells us very specifically this king is going to reign. At the end, uh, at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him. So again, this is about the end. And the world didn't end with Antiochus. Not only that, look at verse 1 of chapter 12. This king will reign during the tribulation period. Verse 1 of chapter 12. Now at that time Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. So now at that time, so there's the time frame, it's connection to this king. And there'll be a time of distress, which is how the Bible describes the tribulation period. And look exactly what, follow, what follows this. Follows the end of his reign, there'll be a final resurrection. Verse 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will, be, uh, will awake. These to everlasting life and others to disgrace and everlasting you know, con- contempt. And that didn't happen after Antiochus. There's some who, who will even point to this resurrection. It's the resurrection that happened uh, right uh, at the cross whenever the earthquake came and broke open the graves. But that was the only resurrection of few people. It was a sign. There was no unbelievers raised, no tribulation period, no conquering of Egypt, no abomination of desolation. This is not that at all. Now, none of that, none of those details that I just gave you is a problem for for a liberal or anybody that doesn't believe in the inerrancy and the accuracy of Scripture. I mean, quite frankly, they think that the book of Daniel was written by somebody other than Daniel using his name for credibility, and Antiochus is still alive. So he's writing up to Antiochus and writing everything that's happened before it to make it look like it's, it's history, and then he just makes stuff up after Antiochus because he doesn't know. And that's a massive problem for those of us who believe Scripture. No believer can accept that approach because if that's true, then the Lord Jesus Christ Himself and the Apostle Paul were, were also duped. Matthew 24, verses 15 through 22, Jesus says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. This is a future event, and he's quoting from this book. And not only Jesus believed that this was a future event about the Antichrist, so did Paul. Paul says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together. So there's the time frame. And their concern is that the day of the Lord has come. So Paul's talking about the second coming of Christ and and our gathering to to Him. The day of the Lord is the tribulation. Then Paul says none of that can happen until the man of lawlessness from Daniel 11 is revealed. A man who calls himself God, a man who demands worship in the temple. Exactly what is described here in this passage. So both Jesus and Paul believe this was future and the Antichrist. And you could go to John in Revelation, but there's frankly too much to even even quote. And if that doesn't convince you, there is a structure here for you literary eggheads. Um, This structure actually reveals two people. Ralph Davis, uh, Dale Ralph Davis points this out well. The focus on the despicable person in verse 21, his rise, his success, his conflict, his oppression, his suffering and steadfastness. And then he repeats 
uh, Daniel repeats the exact same format. A, a parallel pattern here is actually given to show us that Antiochus is going to prefigure the Antichrist. So after that introduction to this king who is to come, the angel then describes his exaltation. Look, if you would, at verse 36. So this is the Antichrist definitively. What will he be like? Verse 36. Then the king, the one that will come in the latter days, will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of God. So the angel describes here his character, and he gives us details about his religion. So the angel first tells us how we can recognize the Antichrist by his disposition or his personality or his character. And he'll be a self-willed man. Now, if that's all we had to go on, we'd say, well, every politician's the Antichrist because they're all self-willed, right? But this text says he will do, accomplish as he pleases. So it's not just his desire to, to, to rule, but he'll actually be effective in, in doing that. He'll be arrogant and brash and unsubmissive to any authority. And that should be no surprise because he's fueled by Satan himself. Rebellion was the devil's original sin. I mean, if you ever wonder how far pride will take you, consider the devil's a foolish, a foolish attempt to, to challenge his own creator. I mean, have you ever wondered about that? Have you ever wondered how Satan could be so stupid as to challenge God? I mean, the angel himself that was like the chief choir leader in, in heaven? I mean, you understand how somebody who doesn't know a lot about God or his power could do that. But this is Lucifer, who was right next to him. And, and somehow, somehow he thought he could challenge the Lord and win. And pride can make you that dumb. And he's been influenced by its deluding power since the fall. Unbelievers are also afflicted with this disease of the heart. I mean, how can any puny human ever think that they could give God a piece of their mind? Or shake their fist in his face? Or think that they can skate around judgment? Or how does a man who almost die, dies in a car crash escape with his life and then the next thing out of his mouth is to take the Lord's name in vain? Well, deluding pride is the answer. And the farther that you get from God, the, the greater pride affects not only you as an individual, but, but, but the world. Look at what Paul says to Timothy. You know this passage. But realize this, in the last days, difficult times will will come. This is the period between the first and second coming of Christ. For men will be lovers of self and lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to authority, to parents. Sounds a lot like the description of this king right here. And notice the time frame. It's in the latter days. People will be that way because their master will be that way. And they'll just continue to grow this way, worse and worse and worse, until there will be a ruler that will rise that will lead them and will unleash it all. And it also means that this ruler will control the religious centers as well. Look at verse 36 again. It says, Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. So the Antichrist will not only hold himself up as the absolute ruler of the world, he'll do as he pleases, but he will assume power over religions, the religions of the world as well. There's a lot of religions 
out there in the world. There's really only two. There's all of these over here which purport that you do something in order to get to God. Your works or your prayers or your denial, your self-denial, or you're just letting it go and reaching nirvana or whatever it is. That's All of those religions are the same. Something you do to make you right with the Creator, the God of heaven, whether there's one or many. And then there's the the God of the Bible, the religion of the Bible, which says there is absolutely nothing that you can do in order to reach God. You are so sinful and so depraved that you, you wouldn't even know who He was if He didn't reveal Himself to you in creation. And even what He showed you in creation, you wouldn't be able to make sense out of. You would, you would suppress that truth and unrighteousness if it wasn't for the Bible and He didn't send people out to preach about Him. That you're that depraved. But that same God loved you and came to you and brought you to Himself. He condescended to you. You don't climb up to Him. And however those religions come about, this Antichrist in the very end will will control them. Revelation 12 and 13 describes how he'll rise in both realms, the realms of the earth, and we preach through Revelation. You can go back and listen to those. They actually mirror Revelation 12 and 13, actually mirror Daniel 10 and, and 11. Chapter 12 of Revelation describes this spiritual war in heaven between the woman, the child, and the dragon. And then chapter 13 of Revelation shows the details of what's going to happen on the earth in the second half of the tribulation period. It reveals the rise of the Antichrist who has governmental authority and the apostate church that will help him deceive the world's population. Both of them will target believers who will be converted during the tribulation period. And then you remember the Antichrist identifies his enemies by marking them with the mark of the beast. He'll bring the unbelieving world together under one rule. We'll blaspheme God and attack His followers. And we'll have the backing of a counterfeit religion. All of that is Revelation 12 and, and, and 13. But I want you to notice the, the connection between that and what Daniel is, say, is saying here. Remember, John comes after Daniel. Revelation 13:2. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and and on his heads were blasphemous names. And watch this. And the beast, singular, which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet like those of a bear, and his mouth like that of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. That's Daniel language. It's all symbolic, the uh, the, the beast coming up out of the sea, coming up, rising out of, the, out, out of time in the earth, and, and the, 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 the heads and the horns and the, the diadems, the crowns, all about authorities. These are, these are earthly kingdoms. But then it describes a single ruler, the beast. John's point is not who are these people today. Is this Russia or is this China? Who knows? These, those nations might not even be around whenever uh, revelation is, is fulfilled. But this final world power, this the beast that will arise is the Antichrist. And the point is he'll have all the characteristics of the previous empires combined. You remember Daniel talking about four beasts and the statue that's there. This one beast will be like all of them before. The swiftness of a leopard, the strength of a bear, the majesty and power of a lion. All of those individual beasts in Daniel will now be condensed in this final one. And he'll have more power and be more blasphemous than all the rest of them put together.
and Satan will fuel him. It's exactly what Daniel sees here. And he will blaspheme the God of gods in particular. Look at verse 36 of Daniel. It says, Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. That's a, a reference to the God of the Bible. Now, have you ever wondered why the God of the Bible is, is always the one targeted by the, by the men of the world? I think it was Jerry Falwell Sr. that, that said one of the ways he knew that, that Jesus was God was nobody ever cursed Buddha when they slammed their finger in the door. Nobody ever says Buddha whenever they hit their finger. They always curse the Lord. They curse the God of heaven. When Islam complains about even the smallest slight, everyone capitulates, but, but they can do musicals that portray Jesus as a whoremonger without even a whimper. Why is that? It's because He's the only true God, and He's the ultimate target of Satan and anybody that follows Him in the world. Listen, you have no problem being religious. You have no problem going to milk toast, watered-down church of even the Jesus hanging over the door that's pragmatic and dealing with all the cultural nonsense that's going, going on. Nobody even has a problem if you, if you claim to follow Jesus. But identify the Jesus of the Bible or speak His glorious gospel and watch what happens. Put your name, put His name on your tongue and watch the, the hordes of hell come against you. The angel says the Antichrist will take that to a new level. Just like people today are saying things and doing things in public which would have been unthinkable 20 years ago because our culture has, has grown so perverse. The Antichrist will create a culture of hatred against the God of gods. He'll speak it and other people will, will follow. They'll, they'll just go right along with his blasphemy. And his blasphemy will be will be monstrous. It, it's a word that means unique. It's unparalleled. Unparalleled blasphemy. Things that no one would dare say, like, I am God. That's what the Antichrist will say. And people will believe him. And even this, though, will occur according to God's plan. I think Daniel probably needs a breather by this time in the, the vision. You might as well. Look at verse 36. Now this king's going to do as he pleases. He's going to exalt himself. He's going to speak against God. What's going to happen? Is he going to take over? The end of verse 36. And he will prosper. Well, he is going to take over until the indignation is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. What the Antichrist will do is controlled by the very God that he blasphemes. Just like the cross was, was controlled by God Himself when Satan thought he gained his greatest victory, Jesus said, nobody takes my life, I willingly lay it down. He'll not only do what God has sovereignly determined beforehand, but His domination will be temporary. Look at verse 37. He'll show no regard for the God of His fathers or for the desire of women nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above all. Now, here's one of the descriptions that differs from Antiochus. Uh, this king will reject the god of his fathers. Antiochus didn't do that. The Antichrist, however, will form his own religion. 
taking what he desires from the ones before him. And there's a strange statement here, it seems strange, uh, about the desire of women. It's kind of uh, obscure. There's all kinds of interpretations about that. Uh, one is the Antichrist will have no desire for women, so he'll be a homosexual. I don't think that's what it's saying. It's possible. There's others that say this is a reference to, to Christ. He's the Antichrist because every Jewish woman desired to, to be the, the mother of the Messiah. The Messiah is going to come from the line of David. So every Jewish woman said, well, maybe, maybe I'll give birth to the Messiah. So the Messiah was the desire of women. So the Antichrist will, will echo that. Uh, frankly, I, we don't know. What we do know is that the Antichrist is going to worship the God of war. Look, if you would, at verse 38. But instead, he will honor a God of fortress, a God whom his fathers did not know. And he'll honor him with gold and silver and costly stones and, and treasures. So the original word for fortress there is used five times in this chapter. So we have a really good idea of what it means. It, it refers to military strength, verse 7 and 10 and 19 and 31 and 39. It's the power to make war. So this is the, the God of military strength. The angel is saying that the Antichrist will put his assurance in his ability to conquer. His God, if you will, will be his military might. And so he'll assume absolute power in the religious realm and he'll magnify himself above all gods, including the, the God of Israel. And he'll keep all of that by, by force. He'll build a massive army unlike the world has ever known. That's what verse 38 means when it talks about gold and silver and precious stones. One commentator said the Antichrist will, will be over the top with his defense budget, spending lavishly to build a massive war machine. It will be like a, a God whom his fathers did not know, meaning his army will be unparalleled in human history. And he'll use it too. Look at verse 39. And he'll take action against the strongest fortress that will help him with a with a foreign God. He'll conquer in every direction. He'll take action even against the strongest might of his day. And he'll reward loyalty to those who praise and, and laud him. He'll, he'll give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will, and will cause them to rule over many and parcel out land and price, the verse says. But it'll not be without opposition. Verse 40. At the end of time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots and horsemen and many ships, and, and yet he'll retaliate. He'll enter countries and overflow them and pass through. So There are either two kings coming against the Antichrist here, or there's one king and the Antichrist retaliating. Either way, the Antichrist fights back, fights, back, fights off an attempt to... and he annihilates his... Uh, his enemies. And he enters the land of Israel where he finds allies. Look at verse 41. And he'll also enter the beautiful land. That's a reference to the, the land of Israel. And many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand. Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. All three of those are historical enemies of God's people. They'll, he'll find allies in, in the enemies of God. And from there he just annihilates all those who dare oppose him. Verse 42, he'll stretch out his hand against other countries and the land of Egypt will not escape. And he'll gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. And Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. 
you ever watch NASCAR? For 500 laps, they go round and round and round, and there's little action, and then in the last 10 laps, it's like pandemonium. I mean, here's a tip. Just DVR it and fast forward to the last 10 laps and watch that, and you, you get the most exciting part of NASCAR. One writer said that the tribulation period is kind of like that. A lot is going to happen in the, in the seven years, the last seven years of, of the earth, and it's going to intensify the closer it, it gets to the end. And that's what you see happening in this verse. He said it's like the last two minutes of a football game or the last ten laps of a NASCAR race. There's a flurry of activity. And the Antichrist will conquer numerous lands. He'll take Egypt and all of our treasures along with Africa and He'll even preemptively attack and crush other countries when he hears of rumors of their disloyalty. He'll be a fearful tyrant, and he'll totally dominate Israel. Look at you at verse 45. It says, He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. And yet he'll come to his end and no one to help him. So during the seven years, the Antichrist will make a covenant with the nation of Israel. He'll promise security and freedom, and he'll break it halfway through. And that's when he'll unveil his true colors. We'll see that next week. But it says here that his residence, his headquarters is going to be in the land of Israel. He'll, he'll pitch his tents between the, the seas, the Mediterranean, and the, the beautiful holy mountain. Remember, we had the beautiful land, which is the land of Israel, but this is the the beautiful holy mountain. This is the temple mount. The beautiful mountain, the Mount Moriah, where Abraham took Isaac, the, the place of Solomon's temple and Herod's temple, the place of the crucifixion. That's why it's called the beautiful holy mountain. And then the Antichrist will declare himself to be God and he'll place an altar on that beautiful holy mountain in the temple, an altar to himself, not Zeus, and he'll demand all to worship him. And the Jewish people will refuse and he'll kill them in droves. A droves. But as horrible as that is, he himself will be destroyed by Christ at his coming. Look at how verse 45 ends. And he will come to his end and no one will help him. Now if you first read that and you've been tracking all along, you've been dragging yourself through all of this detail and all those verses, I mean this ends almost like one of those movies that you watch and you're really wrapped up and intense in the plot and you get to the end of it and it's just kind of like, you know, it just ends. And it goes black and you're thinking, oh, they're coming back, they're going to finish, they're going to wrap this thing up. And they never do. And you're thinking, are you kidding me? I wasted two hours watching this and this is how this thing ends? I mean, we've been 11 chapters. We've been five vision, or five chapters of visions, I should say. Ten verses describing the details about the Antichrist, his power and his military might to end with five words. And the point is, yeah, five words. Because as powerful as he seems to human beings... He's nothing to God. How quick his demise will be, it will, it will come even quicker than Belshazzar, who was, who was feasting in chapter 5, drinking and blaspheming the Lord from the cups of the temple and the finger on the wall said, you've been weighed in the balance and been found wanting. And that very night he died. The Antichrist, his end will come in five words. That's how effortless it will be for the Lord 
when his predetermined clock for this monster runs out? Do you know this moment is recorded for us in Revelation 19? Listen to Revelation 19. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that it may strike down the nations. And he may rule over them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You've heard that probably so many times that it doesn't land with the thunder that it should. But I can promise you, if you were a Jew or you're a Christian even today in the middle of Afghanistan and the world's falling down around your ears, those are sweet words to you. This wicked ruler will come to an immediate end and the King of Kings will return. And then there's a promise that Daniel gets about those final days. Here's how he wraps it all up. Daniel gets a promise about the very end, the very end. He says it'll be an unparalleled time. There'll be an unalterable deliverance and an unending resurrection. Look at verse 1. This will go much quicker. It says, Now at that time Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise... And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. What encouraging words. Daniel gets another breather. Not only is this guy coming to an end, but your people are going to rise. They're going to be delivered. The angel now tells Daniel, at that time, meaning the time of the end, Michael will arise... And then it'll be a time of tribulation like never before. And so we have an ominous warning of how troublesome it will be. But there's also a promise uh, uh, for God's remnant that will be saved. Everyone who is found written in the book. Uh, Zechariah 13.8 said that two-thirds of the Jewish population will die. Only a third will survive the tribulation. And those will be believers. Ones who will believe God has selected Beforehand, the term delivered applies to the living and the dead. All will suffer, but some will be murdered during the tribulation period, but the Lord will deliver them. Those who are written in this book, this is the book of life, in which all the names of the saints are written. It's a common concept. It might be weird to us. I mean, I don't know, maybe, a, maybe the church member role, even though the role of a church doesn't control who gets in heaven or not. But there's a, there's a list of who's in and, and who's not, who's out. There was a common practice of record-keeping of citizens of a town. They'd write their names down in, in a book, citizenship, registry. Stephen Miller said those names were, that were listed enjoyed the blessings of community membership, whereas the names of those who were excommunicated from the fellowship were blotted out. What this says? It says God has a book. And the Bible tells us that the names were written in that book even before the foundation of the world. It's what Revelation talks about, the Lamb's book of life. And here there are some children of Israel who are written in that book. And they're considered in the citizen list of heaven. And those are the ones that will be resurrected unto life. Look at verse 2. 
And many of those who sleep in the dust, those who have died during the, the tribulation period of the ground will wake, these to everlasting life. But then there's a contrast. But the others, unbelievers, those who are not in the book, others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. This is arguably the clearest passage in the Old Testament that teaches about a bodily resurrection. It's echoed in John chapter 5, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of Man and those who hear will live. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and He and will come forth and those... Uh, who did good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Same thing here. The phrase everlasting life appears the first time here in the Old Testament. It's a promise to the first group listed here who are believers. And I want you to notice that the, the fate of both is everlasting. One to everlasting life and one to everlasting contempt. So much for people who believe that you're annihilated after death. God's people may face persecution and many will even die in the end days. But those who do will be raised from the dead to everlasting life and they'll live forever. But unbelievers, on the other hand, will be filled with great shame and in contempt as they stand before the Lord and realize the gravity of their sin. Not just the, their sin in general, but they realize the gravity of rejecting the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Eternal torment is such a horrible concept that we don't even like to think about it. I don't like to think about it either. It's been said that if Jesus didn't reveal it, that we would probably explain it away like we do with other cultural things. But Jesus did speak about it. I think one of the, the worst things about it is the hopelessness. I mean, we believe everything has an end. You know, you get sick, you're going to get better. Well, if you get sick and you die, then, then there's heaven that, that's waiting. There's nothing like that in hell. And one of the things in hell besides hopelessness is regret. Ever done something you regretted? I mean, something you really regretted? And you live with that the rest of your life? Forgiven, maybe, but you live with that reality? In hell, there's no redemption. And they'll remember that they could have come to Christ and they didn't and they deserve to be there. There's even more good news, though, for believers. Look, if you would, at verse 3. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and, and, and ever. And after, resurrec after the resurrection, they... They'll shine, believers will shine like the brightness of the sky. I don't know if you saw the moon last night. We were driving in. It was massive. I mean, it's, it's the once in a blue moon. It was a blue moon last night. And I got up really early this morning. And right beside that, that moon, I mean, it was so bright. You could see Jupiter not far from it. I saw it 4 o'clock this morning, 5 o'clock. I don't remember what time it was. And here the Bible gives the idea of how bright that moon was, the stars, how they'll shine. Believers that are resurrected. It doesn't mean that you're going to glow in heaven. It, it's talking about your righteousness. Shining with the brightness of stars, a, 
uh, you'll be, your righteousness will be exalted. What you do for the Lord will be exalted in Christ's glorious kingdom. This is echoed in Matthew 13. The stars display as they display the beauty and the splendor of the sky. Believers will do that in heaven. Now put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite. You say, that's great. Yeah, I want to be resurrected. I mean, I, w- I want to be righteous whenever I get there. But think about what it will be like if you're here during the tribulation period. You're an unbeliever now, and you don't trust Christ before he comes for his church. And you're facing this type of persecution, and you have no escape. They're going to kill you, or, or they're going to come to you. You have no way of nobody to protect you. Wouldn't it be a comforting thing to know? That if you die, you're going out of the, in the grave, but come out. And that whatever you did for the Lord, even as you stood for the Lord at that last moment of death and would not capitulate, but you stood on the gospel of Christ, even with a gun to your head or whatever it is, that you know that that righteousness will be, will be acknowledged in heaven, that you could then give the glory back to Christ and throw it at His feet. Wouldn't those be sweet words? They would be. One commentator said verses 3 and 4 here are placed to answer the question for those in the latter days, is serving Christ worth it? I think we really trivialize that. Is serving Christ worth it? Oh yeah, I'll, be, I'll have somebody to answer my prayers and be healthy and get me through school and give me a good job and pray for a husband and whatever, whatever. Is serving Christ worth it? There's so much more than that. Eternal life is that you know Him, that you get Him that your eyes are open to Him, that you read the Bible and it's not boring to you, it's the words of life, that your sins are forgiven. You can fellowship with Him. You can actually talk to Him. And He speaks back. Is serving Christ worth it? God's answer is resounding yes, because of the resurrection and what's waiting in heaven. There are four facts about the resurrection here. It's bodily. You're going to rise. Your body will rise. A new body will be immortal. Unbelievers will spend eternity in bodily form, and resurrected saints will receive great honor. And Daniel is told to preserve this message for them and and anyone else who's living during this time. Look at verse 4, and we end. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase. It's kind of interesting. You read that, conceal these words, and what you, you think is Daniel's supposed to like, tuck it away under his bed in a footlocker, not to tell anybody about it. It's exactly the opposite of what's saying here. Listen to one translation. But you, Daniel, roll up and see all the, world, uh, all the words of this scroll until the, the time of the end. He's not telling Daniel to hide this message. He's saying preserve this message. That's what you did. When you, when you got a precious document, you rolled it up. You folded up the scroll, not like a round thing, but you flattened it, and then you sealed it on the end, which meant it was an authentic document and an important document, and then you put the original somewhere and you kept it for safekeeping, and then you distributed copies, which is exactly what God's saying to do Daniel here. Preserve this message, Daniel, because people need it. Don't falter. Keep the words that I'm giving you, Daniel, and then disseminate copies. and Make sure others hear it. 
because they're going to need it in the end. That's encouragement. Ferguson said it must be on record for God's people so that the events of the end will not take them by surprise. Did you know there are actual ministries? There's ministries today that their whole goal, their whole ministry is to bury Bibles in the desert in Israel. Um, and their intent is to leave them for Jews that, that may find them during their flight. You know, kind of the opposite of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, the guys, little shepherd boy throwing the rock and it hits a, you know, a jar and, oh, we found a new scroll. They're doing exactly, they're hiding the Bibles. That, that's their whole ministry. That's what they do. They raise money to hide Bibles in the, in the desert. I think the angel's got a, a much better idea here. God says he's preserved the message right here, which means don't alter it. Preach it verse by verse. Don't add your nonsense to it. Preserve it as God gave it. And the Lord's done that for you. He's preserved this message. You've heard it. So the better idea for you, if you don't know Christ, is call upon His name and be saved so you won't ever have to face this day. But then rather than bury Bibles in the, in the desert, how about we preach it from the rooftops, huh? And be a witness to others to flee this day before it comes. I think that's what the angel wants Daniel to do. And I think that's what God wants you to do as well. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, wading through prophetic literature, it is there for our encouragement. We confess to you, Lord, that Sometimes we're interested in it because we're just interested in future things. We confess we're not as interested a lot of times as we should be because we have ease around us. We have someone to call if we're in trouble, 911. We have guns to protect us if someone comes against our families. We some even believe that the, the government or others will give them resources to bail them out of trouble. Lord, there's coming days, maybe not far from now, when all of that will change. And the very people that we can look to now by your grace for help will turn against you and your people. And when those days come, these will be sweet words. Help us to cherish them even now before that day comes so that we might share the message of Jesus with others and rejoice in it. Oh, we long for the day when we're, we're with you. We long for the day when our bodies are resurrected. We receive our rewards to cast them at your feet. And that's only possible for someone who repents and believes in the Lord Jesus and his work. I pray that would happen even today in Jesus' name. Amen.